How are you guys doing? Hey. I see like familiar faces that I haven't seen in a long time. It's awesome. Oh man, last week Matt was in uh, Hillsboro, and I just have to tell you about your pastor. Like I just have a ton of respect for that guy, uh, and I look up to him in a lot of ways. But after he preached last week, I got a lot of texts from some of, some of our people. Uh, they were talking about just how much they enjoyed him being there, and a lot of them were repetitive, but they said something to the extent of like, Matt is so intellectual and articulate, and like they, they're kind enough not to say it, but the subtext of that is like, and Justin, you are not those things, um, and, and that is very true. Let that be a warning to you of what's to come in the next 30 minutes or so. Uh, it is, uh, I am very different than Matt, and uh, I don't, I'm not as smart as him, so... Uh, That'll prove to be true uh, in just a few minutes, but it's good to be here. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together, for this moment, for an opportunity to gather with other followers of your son Jesus to sing and study your word and take communion together. God, we partake in these sacred acts, as believers have been doing for thousands of years, not out of religious duty or begrudging obedience, but God, we do so because we actually believe the gospel and our lives have been changed as a result. God, as we look at your scriptures this morning, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our mind and our heart to your voice. May we continue to be changed by the truth in this book, and may the gospel of Jesus, the the life-changing, soul-restoring good news of Christ, be exalted in every single passage we look at. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, all of the Colossae congregations right now are in a series together uh, for the next several weeks where we are looking at who we believe God is calling us to be and the type of life he has invited us into. And here is a glimpse of the topics we'll be covering in this series. You've already covered a couple of these, but the topics are hospitality, generosity, collaboration, celebration, and community. And a couple of weeks ago, you heard your pastor Matt talk about how all of these things are to be rooted in the gospel. Now, this week, we're going to tackle the first one on that list, hospitality. We're going to talk about hospitality, or more specifically, biblical hospitality. Now, in order to set up our time in the scriptures talking about hospitality, I want to tell you a story this morning. And it's a story that I've only shared publicly a couple of times, and you'll understand why in just a moment. Uh, It's a story that highlights probably one of my most embarrassing moments Uh, definitely as a husband, but perhaps one of my most embarrassing moments as a human being. But you guys are like extended family to me, so I feel like this is a safe place to to share a story like this. Don't make me regret it, please. My wife and I got married on August 6, 2011. Here's a picture of us on our wedding day. It's my wife, Katie. We were babies back then. We got married. And uh, it was in the summer when we got married, and I'm a huge fan of Oregon summers. Like we only get a couple of months of it and I want to savor every moment of it. I grew up in Florida and so I love the sunshine. I think the sunshine is God's gift to us uh, to remind us that he loves us and wants us to be happy. So I, I embrace the sunshine. So we get married in August, but rather than like leaving Oregon to take a honeymoon, we decide we're going to push the honeymoon back to the winter time in Oregon so that we can go find some sunshine somewhere. Now, when we started planning our wedding, Uh, I made the decision that I would take care of all the logistical details around the honeymoon. I told my wife, I said, listen, you plan the wedding day. I'm here to help, but you plan all the details. I don't care, but I do care about the honeymoon. So I'm going to take care of planning the honeymoon. So I spent the months and almost a year leading up to the honeymoon planning it. 
And we decided we'd get married in August. We're going to take our honeymoon in late November, early December timeline. And, and I spent hours upon hours researching the best places to go, the best resorts to go to, the best cruise lines. And after much, much research, I landed on a cruise that was going to leave out of, out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and go through the Eastern Caribbean. And the plan for us was that we would fly to my parents' house in Jacksonville, Florida, which is in Northeast Florida. We would stay the night there, and then we would borrow a car and drive six hours south to Fort Lauderdale, where we would get on a cruise ship, and we would head on a cruise through the Eastern Caribbean. So the day finally comes. It's late November. We hop on a plane. We fly to Florida. We see my parents. We stay one night at their house in Jacksonville. We borrow their car, and we drive down to the port where our cruise ship was going to be taking off. And we pull up to the little kiosk. If you're unfamiliar with like a cruise line, the way it works, you pull up in the terminal, you pull up to the booth, you hand them your tickets, they, they look at your, your ship, and they tell you where to park. You park in that spot, and then you leave your car in that lot while you take your, in this case, a nine-day cruise. So we pull up to the little kiosk, and I look at my bride, and she hands me our tickets, and we're all smiley and giggly. It's still like honeymoon phase of marriage, and uh, we, we get there. We're super early. Our boat's not leaving for a few hours, and I hand our tickets to the gal at the counter, and she t- takes our tickets, and I said, you know, we're on our honeymoon. I'm trying to get that free upgrade, uh, and <laughs> hand her our tickets, and she looks at our tickets, and she does that thing that like a dog does when it's confused, like tilts its head, kind of like like, this is kind of weird. And I'm like, well, that's odd. And then she looks at our tickets. She, like, looks back at me. She looks at our tickets. She types something into the computer. And then she, like, looks at us with a lot of compassion in her eyes. And, and she said, Mr. Peterson. And she looked over at my wife and said, Mrs. Peterson. She goes, I don't know how to say this, so I'm just going to break the news to you. Your boat left yesterday. I know. I was there. <laughs> It was terrifying. Now, in that moment, I probably did something that wasn't very godly. I basically looked at the, the young gal working the counter. And I said, listen, uh, you're probably new at this. You're wrong. Give me the tickets. She hands me the tickets. I look at the tickets. Clear as day, it says November 28th on the ticket. And I said, Katie, what's today? She looks at her phone. November 29th. You guys, I showed up a day late and completely missed our cruise. So... <laughs> I'm like tears in my eyes. I look at this lady at the counter and I said, ma'am, what do we do? Like, what are our options here? And she goes, Mr. Peterson, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. It's your honeymoon. She goes, did you buy traveler's insurance? (laughs) I said, no. What kind of idiot buys traveler's insurance? (laughs) And she said, the kind of idiot who shows up a day late for his cruise. (laughs) So... So I said, listen, I don't have travel insurance. What are, what are our options? She said, basically, you have three options. Option number one is you turn around and you go back to wherever you came from. I said, listen, where I came from was my parents' house. That's not an option. Like, I'm not going to spend my honeymoon sleeping in my childhood bedroom on a futon with my bride across the hallway from my parents. Not an option. What's option number two? She said, option number two is you buy a brand new ticket for each of you, and I can get you on a boat this afternoon that will hit all the islands you were going to hit on the boat you missed. I said, great, do I get a discount since I already bought a ticket? She said, if you had traveler's insurance, yes, but since you don't, no. I said, well, what's the going rate on a cruise that's leaving in like three hours? She said, $5,000 a piece. Now, we newlyweds, we don't have that kind of money. We didn't even have a credit card at the time with that, that sort of limit on it. Like, so we, there's no way we could do that. I said, what's option number three? She said, option number three is you figure out where your boat is headed and you get on a plane and you try to catch up to your boat. And if you can get there, they'll let you on the boat. We'll just let them know you're coming. I said, listen, that's not a great option, but it seems to be our only option at this point. 
So we turn around, we go park in a parking lot, and we call customer service for the cruise ship, and I explain our sob story. Now, if you think the story's bad at this point, this is actually where it gets a little worse. Because I, I explain our sob story to the lady on the phone, the customer service agent, and she says, yeah, your, your boat's going to be in Turks and Caicos, which is just a little nation of islands kind of off the coast of Florida and the Caribbean. She said, your boat's going to be in Turks and Caicos tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. If you can get there, you can get on, you can get on the boat. I said, great, what airport do we fly to? She goes, well, you want to write this down. Fly to airport code PLS. So I wrote it down, PLS. I quoted it back to her, PLS? Yeah, fly to airport code PLS. I said, great, thank you so much. She said, I'll let the captain of the ship know that you're headed that way. So I just got to figure out how to get to airport code PLS by 8 a.m. the next morning. So I get on my phone in this empty parking lot in Fort Lauderdale, and I figure out that there is a flight leaving the Miami airport, which is about an hour away, to airport code PLS, and it gets there that evening. So I hand the phone to my, my wife, and I start driving to the Miami airport, and I say, call the airline and book a one-way ticket for both of us to airport code PLS. So we get to the Miami airport, we have our tickets in hand, we go through security, we get to the gate, and we think that we have made it. Except we realize that we're now flying to an island that we weren't planning on flying to, and we have nowhere to stay. We don't even know if there are hotels on this island, to be honest, at this point. So I, I get on my phone, I'm thinking, okay, I need to find a hotel that's between where our boat is going to be landing and where the airport is, because we can't risk missing the boat again. So I, I open up my phone, I pull up a map of where the airport is, and I zoom out, so I have the island kind of on the, on the map, and there's a dot where the airport is. And on my wife's phone, I pull up a map of the island where the, where the port is, where the boat is going to be landing. And it's confusing to me because as I look at these pictures, they're not the same size. And no matter how much I turn the phone, they're not matching up. What I was just beginning to figure out in that moment and later would figure out is that the customer service, service agent told us the wrong airport code. And we were about to board a flight to some island somewhere that we didn't know existed before this moment. <laughs> they're boarding our flight. And they said, Mr. and Ms. Peterson, are you going to get on the flight or are you going to leave? And, and we had to make a split decision. Do we get on a flight heading to an island into a nation that we've never been to, have no idea what's on the other end of that, or do we cut our losses and head home? And we decided in that moment, get on the plane, figure it out when we get there. Now, to make a long story medium link, <laughs> and so you're not wondering what happened like the rest of the sermon, uh, two plane rides later in one really sketchy hotel stay later, we did make it to our cruise ship and we had a fantastic honeymoon and it was awesome. But it did get a little worse at the end because when our cruise came back, guess where it did not come back to? The Miami airport. It came back an hour away at the port where the cruises took off from, which was a long drive. And this was back before Uber and Lyft. This was a taxi ride away from the airport, which is pretty expensive. Here's the last little part. We'll move on. We get to the Miami airport at the very end of our trip to realize that I had parked an hourly parking for nine days. <laughs> My poor wife. Oh, man. Okay, what does that have to do, what in the world does that have to do with biblical hospitality? <clears throat> Not much directly, but let me try to connect the dots here. Here's why I tell you that long story. I had spent hours 
and hours and hours researching that cruise. I had looked at that reservation dozens of times. I, I thought about that trip for months. I had all the excursions planned. I knew the best places to eat. I knew the best places to go. And yet, somehow, in the midst of all of that, I completely missed one of the most important aspects of the cruise, the right departure date. Now, this morning, we're going to talk about biblical hospitality, and we're going to look at a lot of passages in your scriptures. And as we will see in just a moment, this idea of hospitality is found all over the Bible. But for the majority of my discipleship to Jesus, much like my cruise departure date, I completely missed this aspect of following Jesus. I spent years following Jesus, years reading and memorizing this book, years teaching this book, years on staff at a church, years knowing the right thing to say to someone when they told me they were struggling in their faith. And yet, somehow, I completely missed the aspect of hospitality in our discipleship to Jesus. And my fear, if I'm honest, is that a lot of people in the church today have completely missed this aspect of following Jesus. At best, we've misunderstood this aspect of following Jesus. So, If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, all of these words will be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. Genesis chapter 18, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Rather than finding one passage and just working our way slowly through it, I want to give you like a biblical overview of the topic or the idea of hospitality in our scriptures. We'll start in Genesis. This is 18 verse 1, says this. And the Lord appeared to him... Now, the him in that passage is Abraham. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, these are three men that Abraham does not know, three men that he has no relationship with, as far as we know. When he saw them, he ran to the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, Do not pass by your servant. So clearly, Abraham recognizes that there is something spiritual happening in this moment. Like there is is a spiritual component to what is taking place in this moment. And look what he does. Verse 4, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So Abraham says, let me serve you. Even though you're just passing through, even though you have nothing to offer in return, let me wash your feet. Let me get you a glass of water. Let me get you some bread. So they said, do as you have said. Verse six, and Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick woman, he didn't say that part, quick, three measures of fine flour, knead it and make cakes, which is kind of comical because it seems abrasive and like not, like I don't think there's a wife in the room that would appreciate this kind of tone if your husband came home from work and was like, where's my dinner, woman? But that's essentially what he does. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, such a funny translation, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. So he kills a calf, the text says, that is tender and good. So he's talking about veal, this young cow that's organic, free-range, grass-fed, hormone-free veal. (laughs) Then he took curds and milk and the calf he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Okay, what's happening here? These strange men, they're journeying through a land. They don't know anyone. And what does Abraham do? He drops everything he's doing in that moment. He recognizes that this is a spiritual moment, an opportunity to extend love, to extend hospitality. And he cooks them an amazing meal. He welcomes the stranger. Turn to your right to Leviticus. Leviticus 
chapter 19. The entire book of Leviticus, if you're new to the Bible, is basically just a long list of rules for the people of God. Uh, There's sacrificial laws, ceremonial laws, social laws. And then we get to chapter 19, and we read this in verse 33. It says this, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. Now, that word stranger in your Bible, verse 33, could be translated alien or foreigner or immigrant, someone that is from somewhere else that you do not know and you have zero connection to. Verse 34, you shall treat the stranger or the alien or the foreigner who sojourns with you as the what? What's the word? As the native among you, and you shall love him or her as yourself. So the foreigner, the immigrant, the refugee, the sojourner should be treated like what? According to the text, like a native, as if he or she was born and raised here. Now, don't let your mind run all political here, okay? No need to like bring politics into the Bible. We're just reading the scriptures together. So just take the word for what it says. For, he goes on, for, or here's why. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Because Israel, don't forget, you were once foreigners too. I am the Lord your God. Okay, to your right again. Go go to the New Testament. Matthew. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. This is Jesus himself speaking. He's talking about the future day of judgment. We're all going to stand before the judge and give an account for our life. Now, Jesus was the most hospitable person to ever walk the face of the earth. He has some authority to speak on this issue. Look what he says, verse 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Man, I hope to hear those words someday. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Don't miss that line. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king answered, will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So pay attention here. How we treat the lowly, the stranger, is directly indicative to how we treat Jesus himself. What we do to the least of these in society, we do to Jesus himself. Okay, again, to your right, go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, this is Jesus' first public sermon. We'll pick it up in verse 16. Verse 16, and he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So he's been traveling around. Message of Jesus is spreading. He's doing all of these miracles, but now he's coming back to his hometown where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So Jesus unrolls the scroll. He goes to a specific text. Like he knows what he's doing. And this is sort of the pinnacle of the gospel of Luke. This is Jesus' big mission statement. This is why he came to earth. Look at this, verse 18. He reads these words from the prophet Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
So he reads this amazing messianic prophecy that was written hundreds of years before, and then watch what he does in verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. It's a pretty short sermon. Now, when we read that, we don't, we don't really think anything of it because we're 2,000 years removed from this moment. But if you keep reading the story in Luke chapter 4, the crowd, they try to kill Jesus. They get so angry over what he just did that they form a mob and try to push Jesus off of a cliff. So we have to ask the question, why? Like, why did they get so angry? Well, they got so angry because of what Jesus just said. Here's, here's basically what Jesus just said to a crowd of Jewish men. I'm not here only for the wealthy Jewish man. I'm not here only to extend love and care for the put together, the well-behaved, the religious. I am also for the poor and for the prisoner and the oppressed and the physically disabled. And in that message, it infuriates the crowd. Now, when we talked through this passage back in our series uh, in Hillsborough, and we were going through the Gospel of Luke, I took the liberty to rewrite this little sermon, which I know is like dangerous territory when you start rewriting sermons of Jesus. Uh, but I, I wanted to try to communicate to, to people of Hillsborough, like, why the crowd got so mad? Like, what was it in the sermon? So I tried to rewrite it in like our modern language to help us understand the magnitude of what Jesus is saying in this moment. And and I want to read it to you because I think it applies here, but just know right up front, these are Justin's ideas, Justin's words. This isn't the Bible. Okay, take that up front. So do me a favor, close your eyes. I want to read you this sermon. Uh, Close your eyes for this. Women, you may want to hold on to your purse. Um, Some shady people in Beaverton. Here's what the sermon of Jesus may have sounded like to our ears in our current setting and culture. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and He has sent me to proclaim the gospel, the good news to the people all around us who live in abject poverty, to the ones who can't afford heat in the winter and cram multiple families in a small apartment in an effort to survive, for they are the future of the kingdom. The Lord has anointed me to go to the flunkouts and dropouts and burned outs, the broke and brokenhearted. I came for the HIV positive and the herpes ridden, the brain damaged and the incurably ill. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to those in prison, to the abuser, the rapist, the thief, the child molester, the drunk, and the meth addict. I will restore sight to the blind, healing for the sick, and comfort for the lonely. I came for the infertile, the barren, the father who abandoned his family, and the mother who was pregnant too many times at all the wrong times. I am for the student who keeps failing the same class over and over, and also for the valedictorian whose identity is wrapped up in how intelligent she is. Wonderful news for single moms, for widows, for the unborn, for orphans and foster kids, because God is head over heels in love with them. I am proclaiming good news to all people, for the refugee, the illegal immigrant, the migrant worker that labors in the fields for 14 hours a day. Salvation is available to the handicapped, the special needs, the deformed, for they are the object of God's affection. My grace is available to the same-sex attracted man, to the gender-confused teenage girl, and to the college student who's addicted to pornography. May God shine his face on the incompetent, the unintelligent, and the outcast. May the abused, the raped, the assaulted, and the neglected find comfort in my kingdom. My favor will be on all people who turn from their sin and place their faith in me, regardless of ethnicity, sin struggle, background, or socioeconomic status. There is now redemption for the lowly, the destitute, and forgotten and ignored by society. The kingdom of God, the gracious healing presence of God is extended to them right here and right now through me. Now, look up here for a second. The kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is for all people. 
It extends to every type of person. Jesus declared it, he lived it, and he modeled it for us. Again, to your right, we have a couple more. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 says this. Let brotherly love continue. Verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Um, that reminds me of that like classic newsboy song. Anybody remember that? Anybody like in their 30s remember the newsboy song, Entertaining Angels? Mile alone? Thank you. Yeah, it's one church kid. Uh, grew up going to youth group. Um, there's this line that says, like, entertaining angels by the light of my TV screen, 24-7, you wait for me. And so a lot of people will read this verse or listen to that song and say, like, you need to be nice to everyone because you never know, they might be an angel. Like, maybe that's true. Uh, I'm not convinced that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate. I think the point is not do it because they might be an angel. I think the point is do it. Like, just do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, period. Now, we could go on all morning looking at different passages. Let me just rattle off a few more. You don't need to turn to these. There are literally dozens of stories we skipped over in the life of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus extends hospitality to the stranger. Romans chapter 12, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says to all of us to seek to show hospitality. In both, both First Timothy and Titus, Paul lists off the, the qualifications for elders. And in that short list of qualifications, one of the qualifications is that an elder is to be what? Hospitable. First Peter chapter 4, verse 9, Peter encourages the believers and exiles to show hospitality without grumbling. Over and over and over again, we see that hospitality is not optional for us as followers of Jesus, but rather hospitality is intrinsic to following Jesus. Okay. Like just did like a big survey of the Bible talking about hospitality. Let me try to, let me try to bring it all together. What is biblical hospitality? This is one of those rare situations where looking at the Greek word for hospitality is actually incredibly helpful. So I want to, I want to show this to you. The Greek word for hospitality is philoxenia. Now, philoxenia is a compound word uh, made up of two Greek words. The first Greek word that you see up there is philo, which means brotherly love. Think of like the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. The second word is xenia, which means stranger. Think of like xenophobia, the fear of strangers, the fear of people who are different than us. So here's just a working, simple definition of hospitality. Biblical hospitality is love, care, and concern for the stranger. In its most basic form, biblical hospitality is love, care, concern for the stranger, the traveler, the foreigner, the outcast, the marginalized, to those we have not yet met. But this is a a completely different understanding of hospitality for many of us, especially the way the word hospitality gets used in American culture. Christine Pohl, in her seminal work on biblical hospitality, makes this distinction. We'll put this quote on the screen. She says this, Today, when we think of hospitality, we don't first think of welcoming strangers. We picture having friends or family over for a pleasant meal. Or we think of the hospitality industry, of hotels and restaurants which are open to strangers as long as they have money. In any case, today, most understanding of hospitality have a minimal moral component. Hospitality is a nice extra if we have time or the resources but we rarely view it as a dynamic expression of vibrant Christianity, a a dynamic expression of vibrant Christianity. Rosaria Butterfield says it slightly different, but it's helpful. She says this, radically ordinary hospitality 
Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as the family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Church family, we must recover this ancient practice of the way of Jesus. Okay. So what? That's biblical hospitality. We see it. I think we all understand it. So what? If biblical hospitality is care for, love of the stranger, the outcast, the marginalized, and if Butterfield is right that the gospel comes with a house key, how can we practice that as a church family? How can we practice that? Let me give you just a few practical thoughts this morning. If you take notes, we'll put these on the screen. First practical thought of the morning is this. Recognize that something in your life may need to die. Recognize that something in your life may need to die if you're going to take seriously God's invitation into biblical hospitality. Now, for some of you, what needs to die is your desire for comfort or peace or harmony in your life or in your home. Like for you, one of your top priorities in life is to not be inconvenienced in any way. And so your home is a place of comfort, a place of refuge, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as it doesn't interfere with your ability to extend biblical hospitality to others. So for some of you, that desire for comfort in your home, you need to ask God to kill it for the sake of extending hospitality to others. For some of you, your fear of strangers needs to die. Like maybe you would classify that and say, I'm just introverted. I just don't like talking to other people. And, And I'm with you, like I'm introverted too but maybe you need to ask God to kill off some of that so that you can extend hospitality to other people. Maybe for you, what needs to die is your fear of the unknown, your worry of what's ahead. My wife and I are adoptive parents. We've adopted two. Our first daughter was adopted from West Africa, the the nation of Ghana. Our youngest, who's a year and a half now, was adopted from the, the great nation of Texas, right outside of Houston, Texas. And we encounter people all the time who ask us about our adoption, and they they say things, and I think they mean well when they say this, but they'll say things like, oh, we would love to adopt someday, but we're just kind of scared. Like, we don't know how we're going to pay for it. That's a common fear. Or we don't know what type of child we're going to get, and that makes us nervous, as if, by the way, you know what type of child you're going to get biologically. Like, that's (laughs) foolish thinking, but it's another sermon. So they'll say, like, we're kind of fearful Listen, maybe that's you. Like maybe God has been pulling you towards foster care and you're scared because you don't know how that's going to impact the dynamic of your family or the, the comfort of your home and you need to ask God to just kill that. And let me just shoot straight with you because I feel like we know each other at this point. For some of you, what needs to die is your selfishness. Like you're so dang selfish that you just can't even see the needs of others around you and you need to pray to God to kill it in you. To extend hospitality, something in you may need to die. Thought number two. Thought number two this morning. Don't underestimate the power of a shared meal. Don't underestimate the power of a shared meal. One of the things I talk about a lot to my congregation in Hillsborough is about the spirituality of just eating a meal together. All throughout the Bible, but especially in the Gospels, meals are central to the way of Jesus. One commentator I read says that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. 
Tim Chester wrote an amazing book called A Meal with Jesus, and in it he says this, food matters, meals matter. Jesus didn't run projects, establish ministries, create programs, or put on events. He ate meals. If you routinely share meals and you have a passion for Jesus, then you will be doing mission. It's not that meals save people. People are saved through the gospel message, but meals will create natural opportunities to share that message in a context that resonates powerfully with what you are saying. Friends, this is how the early church grew, like around the dinner table. See, sometimes I think we are quick to forget that, especially in this stage that you guys are in as like a church plant. And like, it sometimes is confusing to us, but like the church didn't have a building for the first 400 years, not until Constantine like legalized Christianity, the church started having buildings. It's not like Paul went to, you know, Berea and found the Berean high school and bought pipe and drape and set up a Sunday morning gathering for church. Like you, you understand that at an intellectual level. Practically, the followers of Jesus gathered around the dinner table. And the focal point of the gathering of the people of Jesus wasn't the, the pulpit. It wasn't the microphones. It was the meal that they shared together. It was the table. That was the center focus of the gathering. Now, I'm not bringing all of that up to make a moral judgment on what you guys are doing or what we're doing in Hillsboro in any way. And I'm not saying that we should scrap any of that. But what I am suggesting is that we need to recover and reclaim the beauty of just sharing a meal with other people. We have somehow convinced ourselves that that is less spiritual than studying our Bible together. And friends, if you think that, then you haven't studied your Bible enough. Sharing a meal with someone is profoundly spiritual. Chef and theologian Simon Carey Holt describes it this way. He says, it's good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place. A place so routine and ordinary is it, it is easily overlooked as a place of ministry. And this business of hospitality that lies at the heart of Christian mission, it's a very ordinary thing. It's not rocket science, nor is it terribly glamorous. Most of what you do as a community of hospitality will go unnoticed and unrecognized. It is ordinary. It is not glamorous. But friends, it is incredibly effective in the kingdom of God. Last thought for you this morning. Just start somewhere. Tomorrow morning, just take one step towards extending hospitality to someone. Who are the people in your life currently that are strangers that should not be strangers to you? Neighbors that you've kept at an arm's length. Coworkers that you avoid by taking the long walk around the office to get to your cubicle. Classmates that look differently than you. Immigrants, refugees. Who are the people in your life that are strangers that should not be? And here's a helpful way to just keep this on the forefront of your mind as you go throughout your week. Think of of all of the empty chairs in your life. So like right now, look around you and notice the empty chairs. The empty chair in front of you, to your left, to your right. Think about dinner later tonight. When you're sitting around the table with your family, think of the empty chairs at your dinner table. Every empty chair in your life is symbolic of a missed opportunity to extend biblical hospitality to someone to simply invite them to a meal, to invite them to community, to invite them to a Sunday gathering. We invite them in because we believe that in that invitation, they encounter the love of God. And friends, you never know, please don't miss this, you never know what hangs in the balance of a single invitation. We saw this play out in a really beautiful way in Hillsboro last year. There's a gal in our church named Carrie Fay. And one night, Carrie Faye uh, went out dancing with a bunch of her girlfriends at Bushwhackers in Tualatin. 
And while she was at Bushwhackers, she was dancing, and a guy noticed her from across the room. His name was Daniel. And Daniel, in his mind, is just thinking, oh, there's a pretty girl. I'm going to go introduce myself and ask her to dance. So he, he walks over. He introduces himself. He asks her to dance. Now, what Daniel didn't notice or didn't know at the time was that his life was about to be eternally altered in that moment because Carrie Fay is one of the most hospitable people I've ever met in my life. And she accepted his invitation to dance, but it didn't stop there. She built a friendship with him and eventually invited him to church. She invited him to Colossae Hillsboro, where he came to church for the first time in his life, in his mid-30s. And he heard of Jesus, and he heard of the gospel. Several months later, Daniel became a follower of Jesus, and he decided to get baptized. And when he decided to get baptized, he didn't ask me to baptize him. And he didn't ask another one of our elders or pastors. He asked Carrie to baptize him because Carrie was the one who extended hospitality to him. So this past summer, I had one of the greatest moments of pride and joy that I've ever had as a local pastor. And I got to stand by and watch Carrie baptize Daniel. I have a couple pictures of that day. We did a baptism gathering up at a, uh, a farm of a family in our congregation. And I got to watch as Carrie baptized Daniel. And it all began with a single invitation for Daniel to come to church with her. You never know. You never know what hangs in the balance of a single invitation. So let me summarize really quickly. In order to step into this invitation of hospitality, we need to ask God to kill something in our life, most of us. We need to not underestimate the power of a shared meal, and we need to start somewhere. Every empty chair in your life is symbolic of a missed opportunity to extend biblical hospitality. Now, as we wrap up and we prepare our hearts for communion, I would be remiss if I didn't explain the why behind hospitality. Because at the end of the day, if, if all we do is welcome strangers, love the outcast, care for the marginalized, it means nothing unless it is deeply rooted in the good news of Jesus, unless it is deeply rooted in the gospel. Paul says it this way. This is the last verse we'll look at. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verse 7, he says this. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. In other words, the reason we welcome others is because God has first welcomed us. The reason we invite the stranger into our family is because God has adopted us into his family. The reason we prepare a seat at our dinner table for a neighbor is because God has prepared a seat for us at his table. The reason we extend bold, generous, and at times inconvenient hospitality to others is because Jesus first extended bold, generous, and inconvenient hospitality to us. So in just a moment, when we take communion, we come to the tables not as givers of hospitality, but as joyful recipients of God's hospitality. We come to the tables not as givers of grace, but as recipients of his scandalous and amazing grace towards us. We come to the tables not as hosts, but as humble and grateful guests at the table of Jesus. May the bread and the cup this morning remind you of the invitation that God has extended to you in the gospel and may the gospel propel you forward into a lifestyle of biblical hospitality. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together for these people. Gosh, what a, an honor and a joy it is to just be able to stand here and open your word and talk about this idea 
of hospitality, recognizing that the only reason we are standing here and sitting here is because you first extended hospitality to us. How selfish, how foolish, how irresponsible it would be of us to hoard this message of the gospel and not share it with others. Not extend the same offer of hospitality that you extended to us through Jesus. God, as we sing and take communion, our desire, our heartfelt desire, is that you would be honored by what takes place. God, for the person sitting in here today that may not be a follower of your son Jesus, maybe it's their first time coming back to church in a while or their first time ever in church, like my friend Daniel. And may the truth of your scriptures resound in their mind and in their soul from this moment forward. I pray that they would not be able to go to sleep tonight until they turn and place their faith in you. God, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.